Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. We're kicking off a month that we're calling Kiss Timber. Since we're roughly six months away from Valentine's Day, if you are a romance author or just thinking about dipping your toe in the romance waters, now is a great time to start focusing on that February release. To kick off this special month, we have a conversation with romance superstar Sierra Simone. From finding her voice to staking out her own corner of this wildly popular genre, Sierra has something for all us writers to add to our writer's toolkits. As always, thanks for listening. Well, thanks for joining us in the StoryCraft Cafe uh, for the kickoff of our uh, Kiss Timber event. Um, and I'm super excited to have Sierra Simone with me. When we first started kind of kicking around a theme for September, I got to thinking, you know, it's about six months until um, Valentine's Day. And so it, this would be a great time if someone was thinking about writing a romance book. You've got some time to get that written and possibly released before then, you know, if you're um, an ambitious writer. And uh, so we got to looking for uh, people that were just making a huge splash in publishing and just really killing it. And Sierra was at the top of that list. So thanks for joining us today, Sierra. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I agree. I actually think fall and winter are some of my favorite times to write, especially yes. romance, you know, and you can like, can I cozy in and get the warm words written. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Sierra, let, let's get a little background on you. Um, how long have you been writing romance? Well, I've been writing romance uh, since uh, 2014 was when I okay. started drafting uh, my first romance books. And then I started self-publishing romance in 2015. Um, but before that, I had been writing professionally since about 2012 under a pen name. And I wrote uh, Young Adult Dystopian for a traditional, for a big five publisher in New York. And um, it was in between working on those young adult books for a traditional publisher, if anyone's done traditional publishing, um, you might know that the timeline is a little bit out of your control. So, you know, yeah. you might turn in a book to an editor and they might get back to you in two weeks. They might get back to you in two months. And so you end up having some sort of weird time uh, that's, you know, kind of unaccounted for. And so in those sort of weird chunks of time, I started working on writing romance just for myself. Um, and so when it came time to think about like, how do I want to publish these? I knew that there wasn't a really big market for the kind of books that I was writing. Not big enough, I think, that my agent would have been particularly interested <laughs> in it. Um, and so I decided to self-publish under, under a pen name. And that way it didn't matter if it was kind of a little bit off the beaten track, you know, I could, I had control over it. So I could kind of package it the way I felt was honest to the contents of the book. 
And that's how I got started self-publishing. So since then, I have uh, published Romance with a Small Press. And then I've also circled back uh, where I'm now also publishing a book with another New York publisher that comes out next month. Um, So I've kind of done it all in romance. I've done self-publishing. I've done small press. And now I'm hybrid. Um, So been everywhere. So here at the Storycraft Cafe, we try to be publishing agnostic, um, you know, because there are different paths for different writers and there are different um, there are different benefits um, that each path can give you where, um, you know, when you're talking about traditional publishing, you usually have a, uh, a fairly large uh, crew of people kind of surrounding the release from editors and um, publicity folks and and different things like that. And where usually if you're an indie publisher, you wind up doing um, a lot of it yourself or, you know, people that you can contract out to, Um, you know, so you have the benefit of a big team, but like you said, you have the drawback of the publishing schedule and a lot of traditional publishers want you to publish one book a year. And, and, you know, there's a whole machine built around that. And a lot of indie publishers uh, may publish two books a year, three books a year, four books a year, you know, and on and just depending on, you know, kind of what your output looks like. Um, You, you said that, the the genre you were writing and publishing in um, didn't have a big audience. Uh, what would you would you elaborate on that? What one what what was it if you want to talk about it? And um, how did you know? Kind of kind of how did you learn what the the audience reach for each um, subgenre would be? Well, so the first romances I wrote um, were actually historical. So I'm mostly known for kind of contemporary taboo erotic, um, but these were historical erotic. And because they were so high heat and because they were historical at the time, there wasn't really any publishers that I could see that were really investing in very, very high heat historical, Um, especially things that were you know, a little bit outside of sort of a traditional monogamous or straight kind of romance and and historical. And so um, I, I sort of intuitively got my way to this knowledge. So I'm going to talk, you know, like as if I knew very precisely what I was doing, but this was sort of me acting on the limited information that I could glean in my sort of instincts. I, used to be a librarian. Um, and so I do have sort of a like librarian's, um, way of looking at things sometimes. Uh, but all that said, this is me layering in things I learned along the way, but I do think you were so spot on when you talked about, you know, um, there's trade-offs to every way, every way that you're going to go. Right. And so when people ask what's better, you know, going with a big press, going with a small press, self-publishing, I always say it depends on a couple of things, primarily what kind of author you are, Uh, And then what kind of book you've written. And so the kind of book you've written might change the answer, because even though you might be an author who values things like control or having a lot of levers to pull, um, if you have a book that's going to benefit from the big New York machine, then there's a lot of wisdom in going with a big publisher, right? Because they have a whole apparatus designed to sell books that are familiar to them. And if you have a book that fits in that box, then there's a lot of like 
you know, ticks in the plus column. Um, but if you've written a book, like a historical erotic book that um, they don't have an apparatus for, well, a lot of those tick marks sort of shrink, right? And one of the things that I think is important when we think about a big apparatus like publishing is that they're very effective in reaching very big accessible groups of people. So they're very effective at reaching the readers who uh, buy two mysteries a month. They're very effective at reaching book club readers. They're very effective at selling romances with illustrated covers, right? So like they can reach these big demographics, but when it comes to more niche readerships that are not going to fit into the apparatus that they already have, unless they believe in your book so much that they're willing to build a new machine (laughs) to get it out into the world that book is probably gonna fall through the cracks with them too like they're probably not going to reach your readers and so for me what I see with self-publishing when you're writing more of a niche book is that yes maybe you lose the reach of that apparatus but maybe that apparatus was not going to reach very far for your work anyway um and so at least when you are indie publishing you can you can make an honest package that's honest to the contents of the book. So right right now in romance, for example, we're seeing a lot of illustrated covers. Um, Those illustrated covers are going on books that maybe don't feel like illustrated cover books, right? Like they might be really high heat or they might be a little bit more serious or a little bit more emotional. Um, But publishers are very, uh, they feel really good about that package. And so they're putting that package on books that maybe don't entirely match it. Well, when you self-publish, you can say, no, I really think that this needs to be the package for the book. And then, of course, the great thing is that you can pivot too. So you can say, okay, I tried this cover. It's not tapping into what I need to tap into. So I can ease, you know, I have the power to recover myself and choose a new cover, choose a new blurb, choose new categories, um, maybe break, you know, break it into chunks so that it's a smaller book and that reaches that serial reading audience. And so um, with like finding a niche audience like historical erotica, I was able to pick covers that I knew would signal it's like it's historical setting uh, while also conveying a pretty like, you know, sort of sexy feel, right? Like I didn't have to uh, worry about it matching the other books in the line. I could make it be what it, what it was. And so bit by bit, I mean, I think it takes a little bit longer when you're indie. I think sometimes it takes a little while to find your, your readers, but I did within half a year, I'd say I found they were small, but they were dedicated to that, to that kind of writing. Um, which is one of the reasons why I tell authors, you know, if you can, sometimes it takes a while for us to sort of find our organic storytelling brand, but if you can write the same sort of book, not the, not to a formula necessarily, but if they have the same promise that you're making to a readers, if you can do that for a few books in a row, you're really setting yourself up for success because then they know, okay, if I pick up a Sierra Simone book, I can expect blank. And if you have that existing promise that you're making to readers, it becomes so much easier to build that brand, to build that destination uh, and make it easy for those readers to then refer your books on to other people, which is, of course, the goal. It's like the best way to market a book is by word of mouth. Absolutely. Um, it's uh, it's interesting um, how we talked about how 
traditional publishing may have a wider reach, but they also may not be the they may not, may not have the mechanisms in place to promote your type of book. And what what we're learning is that a lot of indie publishers realize that a a smaller, dedicated fan base uh, will outsell kind of you know the 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 big reach of. Um, how do I say this kind of, you know, spreading seeds wide, you know, a very targeted um, effort usually brings about a a better success for the book. Absolutely. I think, you know, I kind of, this is like a very belabored metaphor, but sometimes I sort of think about this industry like a forest, right? Like there's still as many trees, the trees are all different in their own way and they're all great. Like they all do different stuff, but no tree is better than another. They're just different. And sometimes it can be really easy to feel like what we want to do is we want to push out wider, you know, that we want to make more space for ourselves, that we want to define success as how much our last book sold plus one more. And so we want to get wider and wider. Well, the sort of corollary to that in a storytelling sense is that it gets really tempting to start broadening your storytelling. So to say, okay, well, I write, um, I don't know, space operas with an Old West flair, but maybe that Old West flair is not, you know, it's it's shutting people out. It's, it's filtering out readers. I, I'm just going to do regular old space opera, you know, no Old West flair. And so you start broadening your storytelling in the hopes of getting more readers coming in through the gate. But in the process, you lose what's making you specific to yourself. You lose the thing that creates word of mouth with readers because maybe old timey space opera Western isn't going to work for everyone, but the people that it works for, it's really going to work for. And those are the books that people say, Oh my God, have you read this? You got to read that. I'm going to buy it for you so that you read it right now. And so when we're thinking about this sort of forest metaphor, instead of thinking wider and wider, I always encourage authors to think deeper So sink deeper and deeper into what you uniquely do, what sets your books apart, uh, which should be an organic tie into what you love to write anyway. Um, And as you focus on building that destination for yourself, that's uniquely you, then I think that you end up with this, um, a dedicated readership that is passionate about your books and then they sell your books for you. You know, they, and so like you were saying, like it's more worthwhile to have a smaller, but passionate readership. I think that's exactly what I see in indie marketing. Yeah. Passionate readership. I was thinking rabid, uh, but maybe that's, maybe that's the wrong description. (laughs) Um. Uh, how, how long have you been indie publishing in this kind of spicy romance space that you're in now? So those historical eroticas came out in 2015 and okay. that was also the first year. See here, I'm like, I was talking like I'm so wise, but uh, I also did what I'd say not to do and pivoted to a completely different subgenre okay. and wrote a book called Priest in 2015. Uh, and Priest is kind of what it sounds like. It's a taboo erotic romance. And right. And it was a big departure from those historical books, but uh, found me like a really, you know, um, enthusiastic readership for people who are hungry for forbidden romance. And so since then, I've published one or two books a year, indie, um, 
in addition to maybe some small press titles uh, and then now another New York title. Um, in Let's see. So just before you started publishing, um, the indie revolution really kind of took off a, a few years, but around 2010, 2011, yeah, yeah. I think we can almost directly tie that to the launch of the Kindle and, you know, the, the ability to have a device with all of your eBooks that can quickly download and you can carry a whole library with you, um, you know, which then Amazon launched their platform for publishing, which kind of opened up all the possibilities for indie publishers and, uh, you know, things skyrocketed from there. Um, when you were, first writing for your traditional publisher and you said it wasn't you know quite a fit for you they weren't prepared to promote and and to market those kinds of books do you feel like that indie publishing allowed for a wider niche um availability of books do, do you feel like that there was finally a place where books like you liked to, to write and read could have a home absolutely well and i think that i would say Breakout stories always happen. Unusual right. stories always happen, even inside the New York machine. I think the difference is, is that um, they typically need to be stories that a couple other people have bought into and have seen viability in. And a lot of times that viability is tied to, uh, for like lack of a better word, capitalism. And so, uh, and capitalism is obviously uh favorable to certain kinds of stories, right? And so sure. one of the things that I see that indie publishing did was it not only lifted some of these gates for niche storytelling, but it lifted some of the gates for authors from backgrounds who New York had often kind of been like, no, you know, like we don't think this will sell. So like queer storytelling and storytelling from marginalized backgrounds, that really, I think, found a new kind of home for new kinds of stories. And so instead of, say, uh, you know, a story about um, someone with, like, I have narcolepsy, for example, and if I was going to write, like, my great American narcolepsy novel, it would have, in, you know, say in 2002, it would have had to be a book club kind of book. It would have had to be serious yeah. and issue-driven, um, but with indie publishing, now I feel like, you know, you could write your narcolepsy story and it's in space or it's a narcolepsy fantasy story or it's a sexy narcolepsy story. I don't know what that would look like, but I've tried to do it a few times. So, so the idea, an idea for somebody out there, exactly. Somebody scribbling that down. <laughs> going to start working on that this weekend. Um, and so I think it allows for layers of experiences and backgrounds and ideas that are not just outside the box in terms of being a niche subgenre, but allowing different voices and perspectives into the mix without a gatekeeper saying, no, this is not, we don't think this will make money because it's only for people of your background. And I think that indie publishing has really disrupted that, uh, hopefully in a good way. Cause I do think that a lot of, at least in romance, a lot of publishers have really more sort of opened their arms to different kinds of stories. Um, and that's one of the things that I see as just a huge positive. Like a, there can be arguments made about, you know, India's really changed pricing models in a way that's hard for publishers to compete with. And Kindle Unlimited has really 
done a lot of disruption in terms of how we think about books at price points and stuff like that. Uh, but that is one of the things that I see as a huge net positive is that indie has proved, no, there's an appetite for all kinds of stories um, and readers don't tend to think of stories in boxes the way publishers have. Like readers just want a good book. Right. Um, when, when you're thinking about um, romance genres and, and subgenres, um, there's a difference between romance that is spicy, that, it, that has a high heat level. And um, how do I say this on a, on a family friendly podcast and, um, and stories that are just heat. And just spice, if you know what I'm saying, um, because the, the in my perception, the the difference is in in romance, we've got a, a human story, a, a relationship story. We've got people and characters that we care about and they're on a journey of some sort and we get to go along with them on the journey. And we just also happen to have a front row seat for, you know, all the spice. Um so how do you feel about uh, romance and building characters that readers really bond with and are willing to go on a journey with? Well, so I will give you sort of the librarian answer that they okay. taught us and, you know, librarian uh, workshops about romance, which is that if you're thinking of heat level, generally the Rubicon for what we would consider a romance novel with spice and then a romance novel that's the spice is sort of the point is that you can in the first, you can remove the spice and still have an intact story. So if I took out all the love scenes of, you know, a certain novel, but I could still track the emotional growth of the characters, right. and their fusion together. Um, that would just be a romance novel with spice, right? Like it's, it's adding, it's enhancing the journey, but the journey doesn't need it to happen um, on a fictional narrative level. Now, the other option, the sort of like, you know, the book is all spice. That's the point. If you took out the love scenes, the story wouldn't actually make sense because so much of the character growth is rooted in physicality and their physical moments together is actually the engine that drives the story together. Um, I've heard some people kind of that librarian definition is sort of the standard definition, right? That it's the love scenes are what makes the plot move forward in the same way that in a thriller, it is the action scenes that actually move the plot forward. Right. Um, I've seen some people say, you know, no more accurate definition is that it's the love scenes that uh, grow the character. So it's the character arc rather than the plot that we see being tied to the love scenes. Um, and generally I find that when you're thinking about building character and romance, especially a spicy romance where spice is the point, um, is that you uh, don't think of love scenes as just sort of a uh, separate sort of card that you're slipping in between the pages of the books. You know, they really need to be integral. And I think for them to be integral, you want to have complicated characters. Um, so one of the, one of the little tricks I do for myself when I'm creating romance characters is I like to think of two very different things about them, uh, that like make no sense in conjunction with each other. And then the book is me trying to figure out how these two things are the same person. So 
one of the examples I give is that in Priest, there is uh, the main character's brother is on page like a couple of times. And I had no idea that I was going to write a second book about this guy. So I just made him a dirtbag because I really <laughs> wanted I wanted the reader to be like, look how good this main character is compared to his dirtbag brother. Right. Who's a millionaire who, you know, goes to gentlemen's clubs and stuff like that. And I'm like, just this, you know, rich dirtbag. And then a few years later, I was like, I kind of want to write the dirtbag story. But all I've all I've put on page about him is that he's like <laughs> just a jerk. And so I had to figure out, like, how do I give this person enough depth that they will slowly unravel over the course of this book. And so I, I thought for a minute and I knew that I wanted his mom to have cancer. Um, and so not that I wanted it. I just knew that like, that was going to be what the story was. Right. And, um, and so I decided that the thing that he does in addition to taking his mom to her infusions is he reads romance novels to her out loud in the infusion room, but also to all the other people that are in the infusion room. So he's a little bit of their like, you know, audiobook narrator in a sense that he reads to them all and I was like okay so here's my here's my contradiction I have this guy this millionaire who goes to gentlemen's clubs and then the morning after he goes to his mom's infusion appointments and reads books out loud to her how are these the same person how do I create a character where these two things are true? They've come organically out of this person's inner landscape and not have it feel out of character or contradictory, not have a review say, I don't understand how this is the same person. He was a different person page to page. Like that's my, that's my challenge. And doing that, has giving myself that exercise. I do it with almost every book now uh, has been so useful because you create these really complicated, flawed, slightly contradictory characters. And I know that's like flies in the face of all the advice we're given about characters, right? Is that they're supposed to be sort of cohesive, um, coherent, everything. It sort of unfolds logically from their the core of their person. All of their decisions unfold logically because um, we don't want characters to feel arbitrary. But part of our balance as authors is that people are arbitrary, People right. are contradictory. Like we sometimes do things that we know are wrong for reasons we can't explain to ourselves. Or sometimes we accidentally do the right thing and only realize it was the right thing <laughs> later <laughs> on. Or as we're growing, we might be sort of moving between stances in terms of what we believe or how we think about the world if we're kind of in process of changing who we are, which in a romance is often happening. So not shying away from that sort of contradictory kind of character is really what I have been leaning into. And that usually, I think, lends itself well to a spicy romance arc um, because you can't have these sort of messy people doing, you know, making messy choices. Um, it sounds to me like you f you think of plot um, as an outgrowth of character, um, oh, and, yes. and I want to I want to come back to that in just a minute. But I have another question that I have to ask you before I forget. Um, you mentioned the the character whose mom had cancer, and um, you also have in your other writings, like the priest series that you mentioned, um, we deal with trauma uh, in in that series and you know a, a parent with cancer is obviously trauma um how how do you handle um trauma like that in a in a series or in a genre um that you 
maybe want to to dodge trauma, if you know what I mean. Like if if you're if you're talking about um, human relationships and intimate relationships, especially um, trauma, may be one of those uh, things that as a writer you just want to steer away from because things get way too complicated to to go into. Do, do you feel like that dealing with those issues head on brings a richness to character and opens more opportunities for? human engagement um I, I i can't exactly put my question into words but <laughs> no, I, I think i hope you get the no, gist i'm with it. you i'm with you okay I mean, yes yeah, so i part of me one of the reasons why um in uh spicy romance in particular you very rarely see any sort of sort of spiritual aspect to it but one of the reasons why i like writing that is to me i am i'm a very whole person and that my yeah. physicality and my inner and my inner landscape are very tied together. Um, and so my spiritual life and my physical life are one and the same. I am like, I'm one Sierra and they don't, they don't divide into boxes. And um, what, but one of the reasons why I write like that, aside from just being that kind of person mm -hmm. is that I really feel like when we're digging into what would make us a good partner for someone part of that inevitably is going to be sort of reaching into old wounds or things that have held us back from being a good partner in the past, which is often something like trauma. Um, but one of the things that I really like about genre fiction, uh, I liked it as a librarian when I was recommending books, I like it as a writer, is that different genres give you the power to heal wounds in really specific ways. So one of the things that I like about romance in particular is that every romance by definition ends in a happily ever after. And so no matter what kind of, uh, you know, hurt we're exploring or no matter what happens to the characters, no matter what they do to each other over the course of a book, they are going to land in a place of justice and optimism. And so romance is always jumping out of a plane with a parachute, I think, you know, like, because you always know that it's going to be okay, that no matter how hard the fall is, like, you're going to land on your feet, and you're going to land on your feet with happiness, like these characters are. And so for me, it's almost like, I don't know, this is like such an old Star Trek reference, but in, you know how they have the holodeck in yeah. Star Trek. Like romance is such a great holodeck because you can go and you can have these really emotional, intense adventures, but you're always sort of contained by that promise of the HEA. Um, and I think different genres uh, give the safety net in other ways. Like I think speculative fiction gives you that, sort of buffer of it being another world where you can yeah. think about the problems in a new way, see things in a new lens. Mystery and thriller gives you the promise of justice at the end, the promise of resolution and answers and knowledge and closure. Uh, well, unless it's a Tana French mystery, but that's a different story. <laughs> but uh, like I, that's one of the things that I really love about genre fiction is that it gives you this toolkit to kind of jump into messy, hard stuff and have it still be this sort of juicy experience for a reader. Like there's a difference between crafting a fictional narrative and writing an essay on medium.com about something hard or intense. And it's not that there's not a place for that kind of nonfiction, but fiction gives us a different way into hard and messy stuff uh, that I think we kind of crave. I'm sure you guys have talked about this before, but 
They've done multiple like brain imaging scans where they found that as you're reading, your brain is not super great about differentiating between reality and the words. So like if you read about someone kicking their leg, for example, the part of your brain that controls kicking your leg lights up a little bit. So your brain is actually responding in this very empathetic way to what you're reading. And people who read often are actually more empathetic than people who do not read. Like this is like scientifically measurable. And so when fiction kind of delves into messy human experiences, messy human emotions, our brain sees it as experiencing it for ourselves. Uh, And so I think that there's something really compelling and wonderful about that, especially if I can then give sort of the gift of happiness at the end. You mentioned um, HEA a, a couple of times, and, yeah. and in romance, um, we learned this. We did a, a show with Beverly Jenkins, um, romance legend, uh, a couple of months ago, and she talked about the importance of HEA or um, HFN, happily for now, yeah. as opposed to happily ever after. And she talked about the importance of uh, of if if it's a romance, it must have an HEA or at least an HFN at the end of it. And that that's literally what makes it fit into the genre. Um, Do do you, have you ever been writing a book and just think, I'm just not going to give these characters a happily ever ever after. Like, are you ever tempted to? Literally never. I do want to trick my readers into thinking that this is going to be the one, this is going to be the one romance book where there's not a happily ever after. So there's usually in a romance, we call this um, either the dark moment or the low moment or the dark moment of the soul where um, everything all seems lost. And most, most, genre fiction has this kind of moment but in a romance it's the couple is apart and you just don't see any way that they're going to be able to make it work and move forward and I want that I mean a lot of my books could be summed up that like the entire book is the dark night of the soul (laughs) but I want it to be so achingly profound that there's just no way that you think that these two people are going to make it, make it work. Um, so I do like trying to pull that, you know, hat trick with my readers where they're like, Oh my God, it's never going to work. And then somehow it does. I love it. Um, <laughs> we were talking a minute ago and I said, we would come back to it that um, plot as an outgrowth of character. Do, do you think of, of, of laying out a book in those types of terms that, that I've got to know the character first before I can decide what's going to happen to the character? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I like have like a little diagram that I draw. I approach, this is going to make it sound like I approach things in a very linear way. And I don't typically, (laughs) I'm a very sort of circular and recursive person. Uh, So this is going to sound like I sort of approach books and storytelling in a sedimentary way where I sort of lay down one layer and then lay down the next. And that's not true. They, they do inform each other, but the general direction of me thinking about a story is sort of this like upside down triangle. And the first layer is setting. So for me, even though I write typically contemporary, my contemporary settings are so important to how I think of the story how I think of the characters, uh, the co-written book I have coming out in September, A Merry Little Meet Cute, that uh, that story is set in a small town in Vermont where every day is Christmas. 
Um, it's Christmas all year round in Christmas Notch, Vermont. And that's where they film very wholesome movies uh, for legal reasons. It's not Hallmark, <laughs> but you know, it's like Schmallmark in the book. And yeah. so um, having that town as our setting informed what kind of characters we wanted to put in there um, because we knew that we wanted to have characters who sort of were natural to that setting. Right. So like if you have, um, if you have a romance set on like a ranch in Montana, right? Like you probably want a cowboy or a cowgirl there. You have your people who are natural to the setting, but then you want to have unexpected people in your setting too. So what if I plonk a city boy, you know, in the middle of this ranch in Montana? What if I plonk this, you know, bewildered human on a spaceship, you know, in a different galaxy or something like that? So having your unexpected people in your setting is a really sort of, juicy little story prompt right and so then I can start thinking about characters which is sort of my like second layer here in the triangle so I think about setting and then from the setting my characters sort of arise so my last full-length standalone was a book called Saint it's about a sad monk and knowing that you know that he was going to be um in this monastery and, you know, thinking about moving monasteries, it allowed me to kind of think about who he was now after five years of being shaped by monastic life, like how that environment has changed him. And then that also helped me think about, you know, in romance, you're usually doing character development sort of in relationship with each other. So if I have my sad monastic monk, then I'm going to have my, you know, this ex-boyfriend who doesn't believe in any of this, you know, Catholic nonsense. And so he's going to show up here and together they're going to um, create friction inside of each other in a good way, productive sort of friction. That was like an unintentional euphemism. I didn't mean it to be emotional friction. <laughs> um, and then the very last layer of my triangle is plot. And you can see how little I think of plot. It's like just this tiny little, tiny little afterthought. But it really, it's because I gosh, who was it? The guy who wrote Red Shirts, I think, was the one who said it. And now I can't remember his name. But he um, said once on Twitter that characters poop plot. <laughs> like, if you, he didn't use the word poop, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. but if you put characters on the page, they will literally just start pooping story as they go. And that comes from having robust characters. I do think that you have to have messy enough characters who create problems that need solutions as they move through the world. Um, and I use that in a loose narrative sense. I don't mean that every character needs to be a catastrophe, but just in the sense that they're, they're moving through the world changes their environment. They have enough agency that their environment changes as they move through it. And therefore, uh, you know, like consequences arise from that in a narrative way. And so I think that once I have my setting and my characters in place, all I have to do is put my characters on the same page as each other. And the story starts unspooling from there. I usually start with a premise, you know, like we, the book that's coming out in September, there is uh, someone who is like a, an OnlyFans star and she gets accidentally cast in a wholesome Christmas movie. And so... <laughs> Hilarity ensues. Yeah. So once we start with that premise and I put them, you know, in my Barbie dream house, I put my Barbies in the Barbie dream house and just start going, they just go from there. And um, I find I only very loosely have to sort of pen myself to a three-act structure which and I say that like 
like I know what I'm talking about, but three act structure is so ingrained in Western storytelling that we all instinctively, I think, move through it. And so I just have to remind myself, okay, around the 30% mark, whatever that is for this project, you know, I want to make sure that we've sort of passed through a doorway where nothing's going to be the same. We've, we've crossed a Rubicon here and then about 66%. I want to make sure that, um, stuff is starting to hit the fan. And so uh, just having that sort of loose idea in mind helps me write. And so I, I say, I'm going to tell, tell this joke. I've told it a million times, but it, some people are pantsers and some people are outliners. And I always right. say I'm a panty liner. Cause I do, <laughs> I do a little bit of both. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> Where am I? Yeah, I, I have no comment for that. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> Um, was it John Scalzi who you're trying to think of? A, a yes, ago that, I think that, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was racking my brain. Who wrote Red Shirt? Like, I, I was know like, the Red answer shirts, to this. Red Shirts, but I couldn't think of his name. <laughs> oh man, um, Sierra, looking over your catalog of books, it it seems to me that one thing that you like to do is to take tropes. Uh, maybe tropes is not the right word, but concepts that we're familiar with. And turn them on their head and find a new way to tell that story. And your newest release, Sherwood, um, kind of does that. You, we, yeah. you know, we're all familiar with Robin Hood and you kind of flip that around in a number of ways and make something that we are inherently familiar with and bring a whole new story out of it. How, how do you feel about, you know, taking those types of things and spinning them around? Well, one of the reasons I was drawn to romance um, away from young adult was that romance is inherently an iterative genre um, in the same way that mystery is, too, I think, and some thrillers um, where you're not expected to uh, reinvent the wheel. No book, no one book is expected to hold the weight of being a brand brand new groundbreaking piece of work. Um, instead, you can build a career iterating on the themes that matter most to you, which is, you know, I do think I can see, I can see this in authors like, uh, who do write YA, like Holly Black, where I, she's my favorite author. And I can see, you know, she's got a family of themes that she's always working sort of towards. So whether it's fairies or vampires or magical con men, she's sort of exploring these questions from different angles, you know, and the answers might ultimately end up being the same, but like the questions always feel slightly different because they're being approached from different ways. Um, but romance, I think really throws its arms wide open to that idea and says, you know, do you want to write 10 different Duke governess books? Why then you can <laughs> like, you can do that because readers, romance readers love reading the tropes they love. They want a new story, but they love the familiar dynamics of a trope. And, you know, I came from a genre where that was a bad thing, where trope was said like a dirty word. And right. so coming into a genre where that was embraced wholeheartedly, where people search like on Reddit threads, you can find in, you know, the slash romance threads, people saying like, I want more, uh, seven foot tall blue alien human woman romances isn't can anyone help me out and then it's just like a list of all these books and so when romance readers find tropes they love they want to read more and more of them and for me that's just like such a 
such a freedom because it allowed, it gave me permission to go back to my old favorites, uh, like the King Arthur story, like Robin Hood stories and say, what do I love about these archetypes? Like, what do I love about, um, an evil sheriff, you know, I definitely was like the kid who fell in love with all the wrong people in like all the situations. And so, you know, if you're the person who's more interested in villains or something, you know, like romance sort of gives you that freedom to say, what is it that I like about villains? Is it this? And then you write a book and then you're like, oh, but maybe also it's this. And then you write another villain book and then, you know, and so you can kind of keep exploring. Um, and so I really love having the freedom to go back to my old favorites. I think the new Camelot trilogy and Sherwood are really great examples and really just dive in to figure out like, what is it about these archetypes that captured me that I really, that I really loved and wanted to explore. And then how can I also see myself in them? So Sherwood is, you know, contemporary, so is New Camelot, um, but they're also like very bisexual romances. And so it was a way for me to put myself as a bisexual person into those romances and kind of see my, my own uh, inner landscape reflected back at me through the narrative. Some people hear the word trope uh, it, and, and hear you describe readers that are looking for certain types of of stories, you know, like, like you said, the seven foot tall, um, you know, blue skinned alien, you know, looking for a human woman and, and, you know, Oh, I want to read all of those. And, and if they haven't read the genre, um, immediately sort of dismiss it as, as, as like the story is just being told in the same way over and over and over again. Um, can you dispel that, that misconception? Yeah, well, I would say uh, I think of it. I think of it in two ways. The first way is that I think uh, limitations are actually generative, which is, uh, kind of flies in the face of something that we're told about creativity very young, which is that creativity equals imagination equals untrammeled, unfiltered ideation. And that is not always the case. In fact, I think if we're given a massive room and just said, I eat about whatever you want, and then emerge with a book three months later, it might not work for all of us. And so actually, I do think limitations are generative in the fact that if someone said, um, okay, uh, ideate about a forest, and come back with a book in three months. Well, then you're going to maybe have a place to jump off from. That limitation is going to actually focus your thinking. One of the things that I think is really interesting about brain development is that when we are kids, one of the ways that our brain is developing is that our brain is actually deleting <laughs> like synapses, which seems like a bad thing. We want to have as many as possible. But by having as many as possible, our thinking is actually slower. It's more efficient to have very direct, well-used, you sure. know, neural connections. Um, right. And so, I mean, which is not to like neuroplasticity is like a whole thing. And like, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is not my field of specialty, but to use it as a very rough analogy, right, right. I think that limitations are actually good because they give us some, some, focus and allow us to start manifesting because if you can write anything then you can write anything and right. the pressure of that is really big but if you're going to write um you know like a space opera with an old west flair well then you immediately start thinking about how you might interpret that how you might translate it so the other way i think about it and 
you know, in conjunction with limitations being generative is that it's like a writing prompt in a way. And I have judged enough story writing contests. I taught writing when I was a librarian uh, that I can tell you that you can give the same writing prompt to 30 different people and have 30 completely different stories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because each author is a is a soup of their unique experiences and perspectives right. and books that they love and art that they're responding to. And so each person is going to create something wholly organic to themselves. Um, and so I think that tropes are they function in the same way. If you, if you and I both said, OK, we're going to sit down and we're each going to write a world weary detective who gets partnered with a young, enthusiastic rookie like to and we're going to write a mystery novel, then that we're going to come up with completely different books, you know. Right. And so that's kind of how I see tropes as a as a both as a generative sort of idea, but also as a writing prompt, as a starting place that will almost always be different. In, uh, in the romance genre, we, we have all of these sub genres and we have these really nifty names for a lot of the, and one of those is meet cute and your, your book coming up next, um, a merry little meet cute, uh, it's kind of funny to me because you just put that right in the title and yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a wink and a nod and uh, you know, a little tongue in cheek. Um, wh where, what's the idea behind this book? So um, a merry little meet cute starts with our heroine B who uh, I had mentioned she, she has a job as an adult performer content creator and she through like a little bit of a misadventure at the beginning, gets sort of accidentally cast in this very wholesome family Christmas movie. Which um, is a hilarious setup, <laughs> by the way. It is. It is pretty funny. Um, we, I, my co-author and I actually got the idea for it on a writing retreat. So we would, we go on these writing retreats together. And then every night, if we've written all of our words, we can sit in her bed and eat pie and watch movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's like our carrot, you know, at the end of the stick. And, uh, and, yeah. And then we end up usually having these retreats in winter. So the movies are almost always cheesy Christmas movies. Right. And we were watching them and I was like, you know, the, the production quality does, does not, there's not a huge difference in production quality and adult entertainment. I think <laughs> the two sides of the same Touché. coin. And someone could make a lot of money if they just double dipped in both because they'd probably have, you know, the same kind of like script writers, set designers, costumers. And then we were like, oh, my God, what if someone did that? <laughs> so that's that's <laughs> sort of how the idea came to be. But poor B, she makes it to Christmas Notch, Vermont. She has to hide kind of you know, what she does for her day job, so to speak, her night job, I guess it would be. And, um, her co-star is a washed up member of a boy band, uh, who is just trying to make good. He has a scandal ridden past and he's trying to reinvent himself. And so he also has to sort of be very much on the straight and narrow, but it turns out that he is her number one subscriber. And so he recognizes her immediately on set. So he's the only one who knows who she really is. And of course is her biggest fan. So <laughs> that is their, their meet cute, which is a uh, meet cute is such a sweet word, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty spicy. <laughs> setup. How, how is co-writing uh, versus uh, standalone writing for you? What, what do you, what are the benefits and the, and the drawbacks if there are any to working with a co-author as opposed to all of the books that you've solo authored? 
So I would say there, like if you're writing with someone that you know really well, the benefits are uh, infinite. So uh, Julie and I have been best friends since 2014. So we have, and we've been critique partnering for each other for as many years. So we know our creative processes inside and out for each other. Uh, we do love each other through many books. And so, and we've also, we're sort of an old married couple, you know, we've already had sort of our, like, this is how we learn how to fight. And this is how we learn how to communicate. This is how we learn how to have hard conversations. And so we didn't have to learn how to do any of that while we were writing a book, which I think is one thing that co-writers have to navigate if their, if their relationship is newer or younger is how do we disagree and still be friends Mm, that, that's an important aspect. It really, I mean, it really is. And, it, yeah. and it's funny because it has nothing to do with craft, but I do think that if you're co-writing, that is like something that you have to figure out from the beginning is how do we disagree? How do we, um, how do we learn how to compromise with each other? Especially if we're used to writing solo books where, you know, usually you don't have to compromise on anything until an editor says so. Right. So, uh, but we've already done all that. And so what was really great is that it allowed us a lot of sort of almost improv kind of freedom. Uh, so normally when I'm writing myself, I find myself almost too quick to throw out idea or to throw away ideas. You know, maybe this could happen. And then like, no, that won't work. Oh, maybe this could happen. No, that won't work. And I get really sort of hard on myself. But when you're in sort of an improv space with someone, it becomes easier and easier to start saying yes. And, and so that's how we ended up with a time traveling uh, you know, Schmallmark movie with a boy band member and adult content creator is because we just kept saying yes and to each other. What if this? And what if this? And what if the costume designer is, you know, basically David Rose from Ships Creek? Okay. And then what if this? And so we just kept going. And that sort of uh, ideation, I think, is sometimes easier with another person. And I don't say this lightly because I am not an out loud plotter. When I have writer friends who are like, hey, do you want to talk your book out with me? I'm like, no, and forget my number. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because I can't talk about my books until they're written generally. Yeah. Um, I'm a very internal, I don't, I can't remember what the Myers-Briggs thing is, but I'm like an internal thinker and an internal feeler. And so it all yeah. has to happen inside of my little you know, cancer crab shell. And uh, so, but having this kind of project meant that we ideated out loud together. And it was really great because it allowed us to get to places that I wouldn't have gone on my own. Um, I think like, I think what has been the only thing that I would say is limiting about co-writing is that I think it would be easy to say, uh, it's only half the work if you're writing half the book. Um, but in my experience, it takes as much time from the calendar as writing a solo work. And so I think the temptation is, well, I can squeeze more in if I'm only writing half the book, but you're still present for all of the ideation and all of the plotting and all right. of that. And I don't know, I just haven't actually found schedule wise that it's given me enough time to write, you know, another 40,000 words in a year um, than I would if it was a solo book. Gotcha. Um, Sierra, we are just about at the end of our time, but since we are talking this month about um, helping people get get motivated to start on their romance book, you know, specifically, um, if if they were uh, if someone came to you and said, "I really want to do this, but I'm just having trouble getting started," um, what's one piece of advice that you would give uh, a person in that situation? Oh my gosh, this is so much pressure. Just one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's what I would say. 
is or, that or as much as you want to share <laughs> in romance no one book has to be the tentpole of your career some books might end up being that way over time you know like I can look back and say okay these books sold better but when I was writing them at no point was any one book the great Sierra Simone novel that was going to have to hold the entirety of my outlook and hope for the world. <laughs> and so what I like about iterative genres like romance, you know, and mystery and thriller is that you can take as many stabs at it as you want. Write the, write the story that feels the most exciting to you right now. And if it doesn't cover all the ground that is your, your hope and, you know, vision for the world, then you write another one and then you write another one and then you write another one. So think of it almost as passes, you know, at the same trope, passes at the same premise, passes at the same idea, but you get multiple passes. Um, this is not the book that has to... Uh, it does not have to be perfect and said, you know, what did they say? Like perfection is the enemy of the good or whatever. Like, in yeah. fact, when you are writing it and you want it to have all of the feelings that all of your favorite romance novels have, and you feel like it doesn't, it can get really easy to sort of feel tight and locked in by this weight of this one book has to carry all the feelings I've had from all of my favorite romance books. Um, I would say like release yourself from that kind of pressure and just write the story that excites you right now. And then take another stab at the same trope. But, I mean, that's, if it's like, you know, if it's a Duke governess book or a human alien book, like you can write as many of those as you want. Uh, and indeed authors do, they have 17 book series, you know, about those same tropes. So I would say, don't feel like one book, this one book has to define you as a romance writer. Think, think of this book as the first in a series of 15. <laughs> and it's your, and it's your oeuvre that defines you. And I think that's one of the things that I find really freeing about romance and other genres is that your oeuvre is what defines you, not one or two titles. And so you don't have to worry about just one or two books carrying your entire identity as a creator. It's fantastic advice, Sierra. Um, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're up to, where where's a, a good place for them to get started? Um, like book wise? Yeah, like like is there a, do you have a website where people oh, can yes. go find out all about you and then find so, links to your book? Yes, I'm you can keep follow me uh, on Instagram is where I'm the most active. Okay. I am snowed under with DMs, but uh, <laughs> it, that is usually where I'm posting, you know, about new releases and stuff the most and that is the Sierra Simone is my handle I also have a website www.thesierrasimone.com and I also have all of my books indexed on there and uh, on the front page you'll see my new releases that are coming up as well fun we'll link up all that in the show notes to make it easier for folks to find you Sierra thank you so much for thank taking you. time to the show today this was awesome thank you so much for having me that's our episode for today there's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. 
Thanks for listening.